COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and we are covering a hot case in Colorado today. But first of all, thank you so much for listening. If you are a returning listener, I've said it before, you are the best. If you're new to the podcast, welcome to the Crime Clan. Please follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Please comment with your thoughts on the episode or suggest a crime. I want to cover what you guys want to hear. You can always visit the website, altitudecrime.com, for source materials. And another big shout out to my listeners. As of this recording, we have hit 500 listens. I am so excited. When I started this, I thought like 10 people would listen for two episodes and that would be it. And we are just garnering new listeners every single week. And it is so exciting. But those listens don't come without you guys. So thank you so much for your support. And I do want to give one more recording disclaimer this week. I am still taking care of a sick pet. We are near the end of a two-week surgery post-op, so sorry if the quality on this recording is not stellar. I am doing my best. I will be back in my normal recording studio next week, so thanks for your patience as we get that figured out because, you know, life happens. Okay, so today we are covering a pretty fresh case, the murder of Dylan Redwine. When I write these episodes, I want to be as factual as possible. 
We all know that when a case is in progress, there can be a lot of information thrown around that isn't complete or isn't even true. That's why I typically try to wait to cover cases until they're a bit more resolved or we know that they have gone cold. Uh, but I've gotten some major rumblings that this is one that you guys want to hear and we just had a huge update in this case, so why not? I also really wanted to cover this case because as you will see later in the story, COVID-19 plays a big role in the court proceedings. I think this is an area that none of us thought would be affected by a pandemic, let alone everything else. And I think it adds a very interesting and very currently relevant variable to this case. So I know last week's episode was a little short compared to our normal content, so I am making up for it this week. Actually, I'm making up for it the next two weeks. That's right, people, we're digging into another two-parter. And buckle in, because this one is rough. You could say that Dylan's case is one of the most high-profile cases in Southwest Colorado in recent years. The story even hit international news pretty early on. This case also has a lot of random similarities in its circumstances to some of the other cases we have covered, and in the way that these circumstances are kind of Colorado-specific. I'll point them out as we make our way through the episode. Now, this is our first case where a lot of people involved have the same last name. To try to eliminate some confusion, I will always refer to Dylan as Dylan and to his mom as Elaine. Whenever I use just the last name Redwine, I am referring to Dylan's father, Mark Redwine. So hopefully that clears up any confusion as we move a bit farther into the episode. Dylan Redwine was born on February 6, 1999, the last year of the pre-Y2K babies. Dylan's mom has described the 13-year-old as a kind kid. Other people's feelings mattered to him, and he tried to put other people first. Dylan grew up in Bayfield in southern Colorado. Bayfield is about 30 minutes east of Durango and a winding six-hour drive through the Rockies from Denver. The population of Bayfield is about 2,600 people. Dylan's parents, Mark Redwine and Elaine Hatfield, were married for 18 years. However, the marriage began to fall apart and they divorced in 2007. The divorce was extremely contentious. At the beginning of the divorce, the parents had shared custody of both Dylan and his older brother, Corey. I'm a little unclear on the timeline here, but Dylan, Corey, and Elaine all moved to Monument, Colorado in either 2011 or 2012. Monument is just to the north of Colorado Springs on the way to Denver. Monument is definitely busier and near more populated areas than the area they had previously lived in in Bayfield. Once they moved, Dylan started to attend Lewis Palmer Middle School in Monument. After the marriage ended, Elaine started to date Mike Hall, who she would eventually marry. After the divorce, there was a lot of tension in the relationship between Dylan and his father, Mark Redwine. 
The relationship continued to deteriorate in summer of 2012 when Dylan was on a visit to see his father. During this visit, Dylan used his father's computer to upload some pictures he had taken. While on the computer, Dylan came across some extremely disturbing pictures of his father. Now, there are some sources that want to go into really gross detail about these pictures. I do feel like I need to explain what is in the pictures because it does really impact the relationship between Dylan and his father. But a little warning here. If you're eating, you might want to pause here and finish listening later. The photograph showed Mark Redwine wearing women's clothing and makeup. Now, to a 13-year-old, this may have been shocking, but in the scheme of things, not a big deal. Let your freak flag fly. Just maybe insulate your kids with a computer password. It was what he was doing in the photos that made them so shocking. Mark Redwine had a diaper or underwear soiled with fecal matter in his mouth. I told you to stop eating during this part. So you can see why these pictures have tamely been referred to as compromising. It seems that when he saw the pictures, he sent some type of screenshot to his brother, Corey. According to Jacqueline Allen's reporting for Denver 7, Corey had said, quote, it was disgusting. We couldn't believe it, unquote. Elaine at the time seems to have been unaware of what her son has stumbled across. And Redwine, obviously, was totally upset when Dylan found the pictures. Redwine has had multiple claims in regards to these photos. He has said that the pictures are not of him, and if they look like him, it's because they were photoshopped. Then he said he was taking the pictures of a Halloween costume idea he was testing out. And I don't know what kind of Halloween parties you go to, but mine typically don't include planned cases of feces. His last excuse was that he planted them to catch Dylan using his computer because he wasn't supposed to use it. Which, if that was the case, this is about the sickest parenting scheme I've ever heard. According to Harriet Sokmansur's reporting for People.com, quote, the alleged photographs upset Dylan too, who told Corey he was going to confront his father about them, unquote. Needless to say, once Dylan was away from his father at the end of the visit, he did not have contact over the phone, email, etc. with his father. During this time, Elaine and Redwine were still in a pretty intense custody battle over their two boys. The judge heard about Dylan finding the lewd photos of his father in a September custody hearing shortly after he found them on that visit in the summer. Dylan had a lot of reasons to not want to see his father anymore. He said they fought last time he saw him. He said he was uncomfortable being around him. He said he was a creep. In this hearing, Elaine would be ruled to have primary custody of the kids, but it was also decided that Dylan would have to continue to visit his father. The next court-ordered visit Dylan would have to attend would be over Thanksgiving weekend of 2012 to his father's house near Durango, just a short two months away. This court ruling would prove to be a death sentence for 13-year-old Dylan Redwine. Dylan was last seen on November 18th, 2012. Dylan made the short plane ride to Durango on this day. 
So for those of you who might not be familiar with Colorado, you may be wondering like why didn't Dylan's father go pick him up? Why did Elaine not drive him? First of all, like I said before, it is about a six hour drive from Monument to Durango. So if you're looking for somebody just spending a weekend with somebody, you're doing a 12 hour drive two ways. That's a lot of driving for someone to just spend a weekend with a parent. And not saying that some people don't do that. That's totally fine. And that's really dedicated of them. That's a lot of driving time. But you do also have to remember that basically when you're heading anywhere west of Denver, it is not a direct line. So even though it's a six hour drive, you're taking mountain passes, you're going through mountainous areas, you're crossing over the Rockies, and all of those passes, especially in November, as you have snow starting to come in, always have the possibility of being shut down. And you might not even get to where you're trying to go. So I completely understand why Elaine and Mark would have had Dylan make the flight to Durango versus trying to drive or meet halfway or anything like that. After picking Dylan up, they were both seen on surveillance cameras making a run to both Walmart and McDonald's. The footage also showed that the two had pretty much no interaction with each other, barely even speaking. Redwine did later note that Dylan and he argued over what to eat that evening. Redwine wanted to go somewhere where they could sit down and talk, but Dylan refused. And can you blame the kid? They then went to Redwine's home, which is located north of Vallecito Reservoir and is about a half an hour northeast of Durango. Dylan had also asked his dad to stay the night with a friend his first night in town, but Redwine said no. The last activity on Dylan's phone was that night at 9.37 p.m. His last communication was to a friend of his in Durango. They were making plans for the next day. Dylan had said he would meet his friend at 6.30 a.m. the following morning. The following day, on November 19, 2012, Redwine got up early to run some errands. When he returned to the house, there was no sign of Dylan. Redwine's assumption was that he left the house to visit some friends he had in town. Dylan's absence raised no red flags for Mark Redwine. Meanwhile, Dylan missed his 6.30 a.m. meetup with his friend. This friend texted him at 6.46 and received no answer. Dylan was a product of his generation. He was quick to respond to messages and rarely had his phone or his iPod that he also used to communicate far from him. His delay and later lack of all communication is extremely notable. As a note, Dylan's friend that he was supposed to meet up with early that morning lived six miles away. This is not a short walk and definitely not for a kiddo. Elaine first assumed two things. The first was that Redwine was known to get up early. Dylan would have known this and could have expected a ride from his father. Or if his dad had refused him a ride, Dylan still had a really big network of people in Durango. He could have, and her knowing him, would have called someone else for a ride. Later that afternoon, Redwine called the Bayfield Marshal's office to see if anyone had seen Dylan. They had not. But he did not take the extra step to file a police report. Now, you can look at this two ways. One is nefarious, in that Redwine did not file a report because he knew where Dylan was or what happened to Dylan, and was buying time. 
On the other more innocent side, some parents don't want to believe that something terrible could happen to their kids. And they work other avenues first before having to admit to themselves that the issue is bigger and that the police need to be involved. There are a lot of pieces of information in this case that will have you forming an opinion of Mark Redwine. I don't think that this one is the most compelling. Okay, so I wrote that whole spiel I just gave you, went and did something else, came back to sit back down on the computer to continue writing, and realized something. When Mark got back to the house that morning and Dylan wasn't there, neither was everything he had packed for the visit. Luggage, toiletries, everything was gone, including his fishing pole that he left at his father's house to use when he was in town. So you can discount my entire last point. I think that me being in my 30s, if my dad came to my house and saw everything was missing, he would go and file a police report. And this is kind of how you can view a lot of evidence in this case. About the time that you get behind anything that points away from Mark Redwine, you find something that dashes at and points the finger right back at him. But we will talk about the evidence and theories about this case a bit more in the next episode. After continuing to check other places for Dylan, Redwine calls Elaine to see if she has heard from him. It was Elaine who would then report their son missing to the La Plata County Sheriff's Office on November 19th at 5.30 p.m. Then Elaine, her boyfriend Mike, and Corey left for Durango immediately. At 6 p.m. that night, search and rescue started looking for Dylan. At the beginning of the search, Mark Redwine was providing any and all information to authorities. Given his information, authorities initially pursued the theory that Dylan had run away. Authorities did not talk to Elaine before assuming he was a runaway, but took Mark's word that this was probably the case. Redwine thought Dylan could have taken off and gotten lost and had no cell phone service to be able to call and get help. Elaine, however, had suspicions about Dylan's disappearance pretty immediately. There was a preliminary search of Redwine's house using scent dogs. However, the dogs had a hard time catching a scent because there were no personal items for them to match against, since all of Dylan's belongings were gone. Elaine ended up having to travel home in order to be able to provide personal items of Dylan's for the search dogs to use and pick up a scent. COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. 
Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. By November 26, 2012, eight days after Dylan first went missing, search efforts had continued and the FBI had joined in on the search as well. Hundreds of volunteers helped in searches throughout the nearby woods. At this time, Elaine started to be a lot more forceful about the possibility that Redwine was involved in Dylan's disappearance. He was bitter that she had received primary custody. He was known to have a temper and be violent towards the family. And he was the last one to see Dylan. In an interview with Nine News' segment Nine Wants to Know, Redwine said, quote, absolutely not. I would never do anything to harm that boy. I know they are looking at me for being involved at some sort of kidnapping scheme, which is one of the reasons I want them to look closely at me, because the more they look at me, the more they are going to realize I have nothing to do with this, unquote. During this time, there were some reported sightings of Dylan from people in the area, The most notable of these was a mail carrier who thought she had saw him around 2.30 p.m. on November 19th, the day that his father was out looking for him. However, there was another boy in the area that looked very similar to Dylan, and investigators were able to confirm that any reported sightings were actually of this other child. Searches would continue to yield no answers for the family. On November 27, 2012, a vigil was held for Dylan. The following day, Mark Redwine told newspapers that he did not think that Dylan ran away and that he had no reason to run away. This is the point where Redwine should have really just started to keep his mouth shut. He starts to give a lot of interviews that give conflicting information. First, he's the one that alerted authorities to the theory that Dylan probably had run away, and now he's saying, oh no, he definitely didn't run away. Secondly, Dylan definitely had a reason to run away because he didn't want to be there with his father, and if his father doesn't realize that, he's a real idiot. (laughs) Ironically enough, the same day that Redwine gave this interview, which was November 28th, and also nine days into the search, Authorities deemed Dylan to no longer be considered a runaway. They were looking for either a kidnapped or a murdered child. With proper personal items to give dogs Dylan scent and a search warrant, authorities swarmed over Redwine's house. It was now that they started to find evidence pointing to what may have happened to Dylan. But we'll dive deeper into that next week. On December 4th, investigators asked both Elaine and Redwine to take polygraphs regarding Dylan's disappearance, and they both agreed. Elaine passed hers, flying colors, did great. 
Redwine was told he failed miserably by authorities. And I know you're wondering, I haven't come across any source that talks about why he failed or what certain questions might have triggered a failure. But I would assume that right now, investigators are keeping this close to their vest. And on a second note, let's remember that polygraphs can be compelling, but cannot be held as evidence in a court of law. What is compelling, though, is a conversation that came up later when the family went on the Dr. Phil show. Redwine claimed that his polygraph could have been faulty, which is a total possibility. So Dr. Phil then offered someone he had to do a polygraph for him. This guy trains the FBI in polygraphs, like he knows what he's doing. So if you're innocent, this is a great way to try to turn the conversation, right? Well, Mark Redwine refused the offer. On December 8th, 2012, a huge, large-scale search took place to continue to try to locate Dylan. 500 volunteers helped in this particular search. They looked in the woods and nearby abandoned buildings. A dive team was even brought in to search a lake in the area. But the search went really slow, and again, for reasons that only happen in Colorado. It was November, so temperatures were dropping in the state. And the dive team came from a place of low altitude. So the combination of both the cold and not being acclimated to the altitude restricted the divers breathing drastically. This meant that divers could only be underwater for about 20 minutes at a time. There was even more pressure on the search than others so far. Winter in Colorado was closing in and soon the area would be covered in snow and ice. We saw a similar issue in the Adolf Coors case covered in episode one and two. Once winter arrives, very little can be found until the snow melts in the mountains, and it does a lot of damage to potential evidence. This search was the only one Mark Redwine joined in on. The last ditch search in December turned up nothing for investigators. It wouldn't be until the snow melted and summer arrived that Dylan's case would gain some traction. As the weeks went on without finding any trace of Dylan, Livestrong style bracelets were made that said, find Dylan Redwine. They sold for $5 each and funded continued searches for the 13 year old. By January 24th, just over two months from the last time anyone saw Dylan, Crime Stoppers, other supporters, and these bracelets had raised $50,000 to offer as a reward. To date, no one has cashed in on this offer. While the investigators halted while Winter took over the state, Elaine did not stop trying to get answers. In February 2013, Elaine and Redwine were in some heated interviews on Dr. Phil's show. Elaine even hit the basics of the case. Dylan was with Mark, and Mark lost him. Dylan was his responsibility as a parent. It was his responsibility to know where he was. So I did not know this, but Dr. Phil was trained as a forensic psychologist and worked within the court system. After watching the two parents interact, Dr. Phil pointed out that Redwine only wanted to fight with his wife and at no time brought up his son or looking for his son. Summer arrived as well as small answers for Dylan's family. In June 2013, some of Dylan's remains, as well as pieces of a sock and a shirt, 
were found on a dirt road that goes through the San Juan National Forest called Middle Mountain Road. The remains were located about eight miles up the dirt road and a hundred yards out from the road, so out from the road into the wilderness. The road served as both an ATV trail and a U.S. Forest Service road. The location was within 10 miles of Mark Redwine's home. On June 27th, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, which we know as the CBI, confirmed that the bones found were those of Dylan Redwine. Dylan's case was changed from undetermined to homicide. While this was a big leap in the investigation and a little bit of closure for the family, it would be a long time before anyone knew anything else about Dylan's disappearance. As we will see, it took a long time for investigators to catch up with Mark Redwine. And for clarity, not because of lack of trying, they were working to build as stable of a case as they could. But Elaine would waste no time. The day before the announcement about the match for Dylan's skeletal remains was made public, Elaine filed a wrongful death suit against Mark Redwine. Now, remember, there are some big differences in a criminal to a civil case. A person can be convicted in a civil case and not in a criminal case. Think O.J. Simpson. A civil case is more like suing someone. It's the two parties involved pleading their case. So Elaine versus Mark, instead of a criminal case in which it would be the state versus Mark Redwine. There's also a lot less of a burden of proof in a civil case. In a criminal case, you have to prove without a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty. In a civil case, you basically just kind of have to edge past the 50% mark. Once Elaine filed suit, Redwine filed a countersuit, kind of for defamation. He claimed that she basically lied about the level of domestic violence in the relationship and made him a target for law enforcement in the search for Dylan. Elaine's lawsuit was eventually thrown out in December 2015 because it was filed after the statute of limitations had ended. This then nullified Redwine's suit against her. Had this not been past the statute of limitations, I honestly think Elaine could have had a really strong chance of winning in a civil suit because she was spot on. A couple months after Dylan's remains were found, on August 19th, 2015, Mark Redwine was named a person of interest in Dylan's case. Now remember, this is different from being a suspect. A person of interest basically means that investigators think the person has information that is important to the case. A person of interest can certainly be upgraded to a suspect, or they can be found, talked to, that information that the police want is received, and that person is no longer a person of interest. Two more years would pass with no new information about Dylan. Then, in November 2015, three years after his disappearance, Dylan's skull was found by hikers. His skull was located just a mile and a half away from the other remains that had been found. 
My initial thought was that this could have been animal activity, but we will talk about an expert in the next episode that says that this isn't really the case. So again, more pieces of evidence that are just becoming more compelling. Dylan's skull also told a very big story about his death. It showed evidence of two blunt force trauma injuries. These blunt force trauma markings were determined by forensic anthropologists to be consistent with being struck by a knife. While Dylan's skull provided some more answers in this case, it didn't speed along the process. La Plata County did not try to convict Mark Redwine right away. They wanted to make sure that they had enough evidence and a solid case to go to trial with. They ended up involving the Boulder, Denver, and Jefferson County prosecutors and investigators and the Colorado Attorney General's office. The evidence against Redwine was presented to a grand jury. And we have had a lot of these cases lately. We talked about a grand jury most recently in last week's episode on the Chris Wilson case. Remember, a grand jury is involved at the beginning stage of seeing if the charges should even be brought against the defendant. Being that the case against Redwine is so circumstantial, this indictment was key. The grand jury agreed with investigators and prosecutors in July 2017, and Mark Redwine was arrested after they brought down their indictment. Redwine was arrested on July 22, 2017 in Bellingham, Washington. At the time, he was working as a truck driver and was making a route through Washington State. He was charged with second-degree murder and child abuse resulting in death. This arrest came five years after Dylan's disappearance. Redwine was held on a $1 million cash bond while he awaited an extradition to Colorado. He did not fight the extradition process. He then pleaded not guilty to the crimes in June 2018. In an interview with Denver 7 in 2016, a year prior to his arrest, Redwine had said this about the possibility of being charged for Dylan's disappearance. Quote, It would surprise me, yes, because I don't think that day will ever come. If they don't have it by now, they're not going to have it, unquote. Is he eating those words now? Okay, so now we have set the scene for an arrested dad accused of murdering his son. I'm sure you're thinking at this point that I don't have any material for a second episode. Well, if you didn't know this already, guess what? Mark Redwine hasn't even stood trial yet. And it's 2021, nine years after Dylan went missing. Next week, we will be covering some theories, the evidence against Mark Redwine, and the reason that he has not been convicted of this crime yet. But I do want to wrap up with a couple of musings about what we have covered so far. Musing number one. Sorry, I have to touch base on these pictures again. When I first saw what the content was, I figured this was some National Enquirer-level tabloid BS. But let's be honest, you cannot make something like that up. I really wonder, too, if this is part of why this story went so viral and it was covered so internationally. I mean, the story is totally sad and deserves that coverage in a perfect world, as does every case. 
But Durango's population is only about 19,000 people. So this seems so literally small town to have gotten such a huge reach. But let's be honest, people love a sensational scandal, and this story has got it. Sadly enough, though, all the media exposure did not lead to any faster answers for Elaine, Corey, and the rest of Dylan's family. Musing number two, you have to think that everything in this case would have been different if the judge hadn't ordered Dylan to visit his father. But I'm not blaming the judge. I'm sure in custody cases like this, people will say anything to get rights to their kids, or even just to spite their ex-partner. I have to think that this story about the pictures had to have seemed pretty outlandish for a 13-year-old to come up with, though. Regardless, the judge made a decision that they probably could make in a hundred other cases with no consequences like this and something like this not be the result. It just shows you that you never know what somebody is really capable of. Musing number three. There is some speculation that the police took Mark's pushing of the runaway theory too seriously. And I can definitely see both sides of this. It seems kind of inappropriate to have not gotten Elaine weighing in on this a little bit sooner, but she was also the parent that was not in town at the time when it happened. And let's be honest, we see this over and over. Adolf Kors in episode one and two was thought to have just abandoned his car. Crystal Reisinger in episode seven was thought to have just left or walked off and got hurt. Oftentimes, the most nefarious reason is not the first one that gets investigated. That's just the reality of it. So guys, thanks so much for listening today. Again, I'm so excited. We've hit 500 listens and you guys just make wanting to do this even more fun. So the case we covered today is a really sad and very recent case going on in Colorado right now. And I really thank you for tuning in to listen. Like I said, next week we will dive into the evidence and ensuing courtroom trial surrounding this case. I'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but there was a pre-trial hearing on May 14th that did confirm that this trial is set to start next month. So make sure that you follow or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I will definitely be continuing to follow this case and we'll do some updates as things get farther along. I don't know if those updates will be enough for a full Sunday episode for you. So I might be doing smaller updates through the week. And the only way you're going to catch those is if you're subscribed and you're getting those notifications of when the podcast comes out. Additionally, connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Please comment on your thoughts. This case is a wild one and suggest a crime. The last few have all been suggestions and they've been great episodes. As always, you can visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials and the link to purchase merch. Thank you so much for your time and I cannot wait to tell you part two of this episode next week on Altitude Crime.
Episode 9, The Murder of Dylan Redwine, Part 1, was written, produced, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.